This is a reading of Rudolf Steiner's book, Anthroposophical Guidelines, also uh, translated as Anthroposophical Leading Thoughts. I'm on page 27 of this ebook that I have a link for you to acquire if you wish. I'm on page 27, guideline number 88. In the waking consciousness of present times, man experiences himself as standing within the physical world. This experience hides from him the fact that within his own being the effects of a life between death and birth are active. Number 89. In dreaming consciousness, man experiences his own being unharmoniously united with the spiritual being of the universe in a chaotic way. Waking consciousness cannot grasp the essential content of this dreaming consciousness. Imaginative and inspired consciousness reveals that the spiritual world, through which man lives between death and birth, participates in the formation of his inner being. Number 90. In the consciousness of dreamless sleep, man experiences his own being without conscious knowledge, as infused with the results of previous earth lives. Inspired and intuitive consciousness progress toward the revelation of these results and see the activity of previous lives in the pattern of destiny karma in the present life. Number 91. The will enters normal consciousness only through thoughts in the present era. This normal consciousness can only relate to what is sensibly perceptible, however. It grasps only what is perceptible through the senses about its own nature. In this consciousness, man knows about his impulses of will only by the thinking observation of himself, as he knows of the outer world only by observing it. Number 92. Karma, which is active in the will, is an inherent attribute in it from previous earth lives. It cannot, therefore, be grasped by ideas derived from sensory existence, which are only oriented toward contemporary earth life. Number 93. Because these ideas cannot grasp karma, they relegate what is unintelligible about human will impulses to the mystical obscurity of the bodily constitution whereas in reality it is the effect of past earth lives. Number 94. Man stands in the physical world with ordinary conceptualization, which is imparted through the senses. In order to incorporate this physical world into his consciousness, karma must be silent. 
In a manner of speaking, man, as a thinker, forgets his karma. Number 95. Karma acts in manifestations of will, but its activity remains unconscious. By advancing to imagination, that which is unconsciously active in the will, karma is grasped. One feels his destiny internally. Number 96. Once inspiration and intuition join imagination, in addition to the impulses of the present, the effect of former earth lives is also perceptible in the activity of the will. Past life actively manifests itself in the present one. Number 97. A cruder description might say, thinking, feeling, and willing live in the human soul. A subtler one must say, thinking always contains an undercoating of feeling and willing, feeling of thinking and willing, willing of thinking and feeling. It is just that the thinking aspect predominates in thought, as do feeling and willing in their respective domains. Number 98. The feeling and willing of thought contain the karmic results of past earth lives. The thinking and willing of feeling determine character in a karmic way. The thinking and feeling of willing wrench the current earth life from its karmic connections. Number 99. In the feeling and willing of thinking, man lives out the karma of the past. In the thinking and feeling of the will, he prepares the karma of the future. Number 100. Thoughts have their actual seat in the human etheric body, but there they are living essential forces. They impress themselves on the physical body, and as such impressed thoughts, they have the shadowy quality through which normal consciousness knows them. Number 101. What lives in thoughts as feeling comes from the astral body. What lives as willing comes from the I capital. In sleep, the human etheric body radiates with one's thoughts. Only the person does not participate, for he has extracted from the etheric and physical bodies the feeling of thoughts with the astral body and the willing of same with the I. Number 102. At the moment during sleep, in which the astral body and the I sever their relation to the etheric body's thoughts, 
they enter into relation with karma, to envisioning the events throughout repeated earth lives. This envisioning is not open to normal consciousness unless a supersensible consciousness enters it. The pre-Mykaelic and the Mykaelic path. One will not be able to see in the right light how the Mykael impulse entered into human evolution if one thinks about the relationship between the new ideas and nature in the way which is usual today. One thinks, out there is nature with its processes and beings. Within there are the ideas which describe concepts about nature, or also the so-called laws of nature. For the thinkers it's all about how these ideas are formed which have a correct relation to nature or contain the true laws of nature. Little importance is given to how these ideas relate to the person who has them. Nevertheless, one will only understand what is important when the question is asked, what does man experience in the new natural scientific ideas? The answer may be found in the following way. Today, man considers that his ideas have arisen through the activity of his soul. He feels that he is the architect of his ideas, whereas only the perceptions come to him from without. He did not always feel this way. In older times, he did not feel that the content of ideas was self-made but rather something received as inspiration from the supersensible world. This feeling came about by stages, and the stages depended upon which part of his being experienced what he calls his ideas today. In today's age of consciousness-soul development, what is stated in the previous guidelines is unreservedly valid. Quote, Thoughts have their actual seat in the human etheric body, but there they are living essential forces. They impress themselves on the physical body, and as such impressed thoughts, they have the shadowy quality through which normal consciousness knows them. One could go back to the time when thoughts were directly experienced in the eye. Then they were not shadowy, as today. They weren't merely living. They were ensouled and thoroughly spiritualized. But that means man did not think thoughts. Rather, he experienced the perception of actual spiritual beings. Everywhere in antiquity, one would find a consciousness which looked up to such a world of spiritual beings. What has been historically retained of this 
is called myth-building consciousness today, and no particular value is attributed to it for understanding the real world. Yet man stands with this consciousness in his world, in the world of his origin, while he extracts himself from this, his world with today's consciousness. Man is spirit, and his world is that of the spirits. A next stage is where thinking was no longer experienced by the eye, but by the astral body. Here direct spirituality was lost to the mind's view. Thought appeared as an ensouled living thing. During the first stage, that of seeing actual spiritual beings, man did not strongly feel the need to relate what was spiritually seen to the sense-perceptible world. Although the sensory phenomena manifested themselves to him as supersensible acts, there was no necessity to create a special science for what the spiritual view directly perceived. Furthermore, the spiritual being's world was of such magnitude that attention was directed there above all. It was different during the second consciousness stage, when the actual spiritual beings hid themselves from view. Their reflection, as ensouled life, appeared. One began to associate the, quote, life of nature, close quote, with this, quote, life of soul, close quote. One sought the active spiritual essence and its deeds in nature and natural phenomena. What later appeared as alchemy is to be seen as an historical echo of this consciousness stage. Just as man thought spirit beings during the first consciousness stage, living completely in his being, in this second stage he was still close to himself and his spiritual origins. It was quite impossible at both stages for him to really arrive at his own inner impulse to action. A spirituality which is of his own nature acted in him. What he seemed to do was the manifestation of processes which occurred through spiritual beings. What the person did was the sensory-physical emergence of a real divine spiritual occurrence behind it. A third epoch of consciousness evolution brought thoughts to consciousness, but as living ones in the etheric body. When the Greek civilization was great, it lived in this consciousness. When the Greek thought, he did not form a thought through which he, as if of his own shaping, looked at the world. Rather, he felt a life evoked, which also pulsated externally in things and processes. <clears throat> Therewith, 
the desire for freedom of his own actions arose for the first time. Not yet true freedom, but the desire for it. Man, who felt the actions of nature within him, was able to develop the desire to emancipate his own activity from an activity he perceived to be foreign to him. Nevertheless, he still felt the last vestiges of the spirit world, which is of the same nature as man, in exterior activity. It was only once the thoughts impregnated themselves in the physical body and consciousness extended to this limit was the possibility of freedom realized. This was the situation during the 15th century. The evolution of the world does not depend on what importance the current ideas about nature may have, for these ideas have not taken the form they have in order to deliver a certain image of nature, but to bring humanity to a certain stage of development. When thoughts captured the physical body, spirit, soul and life were excised from their content, and the abstract shadows which clung to the physical body alone remained. Such thoughts can only make physical material elements the objects of their cognition, for they themselves are only real in the physical material body of man. Materialism did not arise because only material beings and processes are perceivable in nature, but because man had to pass through a stage in his evolution which led him to a consciousness in which he was initially only capable of seeing material manifestations. This necessary one-sided organization of human evolution resulted in the modern conception of nature. Michael's mission is to bring the forces to human etheric bodies through which the shadow thoughts can regain life. Then the souls and spirits of the supersensible world will be drawn toward the invigorated thoughts. Liberated man will be able to live with them, as formerly when he was only the physical reflection of their activity lived with them. Number 103 In the evolution of humanity, consciousness descends the ladder of thought development. During the first consciousness stage, man experienced thoughts in the I as spiritual, ensouled, enlivened essence. During the second stage, Man experienced thoughts in the astral body. They manifested there only a greater degree of the ensouled and enlivened spiritual essence. During the third stage, 
man experienced thought in the etheric body. They manifested only an inner activity, like an echo of soul. During the fourth, contemporary stage, man experiences thoughts in the physical body. They manifest dead shadows of the spiritual. Number 104. To the degree that the spirit-soul-enlivened thinking retreats, man's self-will comes to life and freedom becomes possible. Number 105. Michael's task is to lead man back on the pathway of will from whence he came for he descended on the pathway of thinking from supersensory experience to sensory experience with his earthly consciousness. Michael's task in the sphere of Araman. When man looks back upon his evolution and the special attributes which brought him to the spiritual vision which his spiritual life has taken on during the past five hundred years, he must, even with normal consciousness, at least recognize that since these five hundred years he has stood at an important turning point in the earthly evolution of humanity. In the previous consideration, I pointed to this important turning point from one point of view, the observation of evolution in antiquity. One sees how the soul force in man developed to the point where it is now active as the force of intelligence. Dead abstract thoughts now appear in the field of human consciousness. These thoughts are bound to man's physical body, and he must recognize that they are of his own making. In antiquity, man saw divine spiritual beings when directing his vision to where his own thoughts originated. He found his whole being down to the physical body, bound to these beings, he had to recognize himself as their creation, but as such creation not only recognize his being, but also his deeds. Man had no will of his own. What he did was the manifestation of divine will. In stages, as has been described, he has come to have his own will beginning approximately 500 years ago. But the last stage is far more different from all the others than they are amongst themselves. In that thoughts pass over to the physical body, they lose life. They become dead, spiritually dead structures. Previously, as they belonged to man, they were simultaneously organs of the divine spiritual beings to whom man belonged. They willed in man, and therefore through them 
man felt himself united with the spiritual world. With dead thoughts he feels himself detached from the spiritual world. He feels himself completely displaced to the physical world. He is thus displaced to the sphere of harmonic spirituality. This has no strong power in the areas in which the beings of the higher hierarchies keep man in their sphere, in which they either act in man themselves, as in antiquity, or, as later, through their ensouled or living reflection. As long as supersensible beings acted in human affairs, that is until the fifteenth century, the Aramonic powers had only a weakly suggestive power within human evolution. Direct intervention only became possible in the period that began approximately 500 years ago. The Persian worldview did not contradict this when describing Araman's work. For that worldview did not imply Araman working within human soul evolution, but in one directly bordering on the human soul world. Araman's machinations may have run over from a neighboring spirit world into the human soul world, but did not directly intervene. Thus, man stands at the end of an evolutionary stream in which his being, derived from such a divine spirituality, finally succumbs as such to his abstract intelligence. Man has not remained in the divine spiritual spheres which constitute his origin. What began five hundred years ago for human consciousness had already taken place to a larger extent for his whole being when the mystery of Golgotha took place on earth. Imperceptibly, for the consciousness of most people, human evolution had gradually slipped out of a world in which Araman had little power into one in which he had much. This slipping into a different world stratum reached its completion in the 15th century. Araman's influence on humanity during that world stratum was possible and could have had devastating consequences, because in that stratum man's relation to divine activity had died out but man could not develop free will in any other way than by making his way into a sphere in which the divine spiritual beings that had been united with him from the very beginning were not living. Seen cosmically, the sun mystery, S-U-N, is in the essence of human evolution. Up until the important turning point of his evolution, Man was able to perceive that divine spiritual beings were conjoined with his origin. They have, however, 
detach themselves from the sun and left only what is dead behind, so that man in his corporeality can now only receive dead thoughts through the sun. But those beings have sent Christ from the sun to the earth. He has united his being with the mortality of the divine spiritual existence in Araman's realm for the healing of humanity. Thus humanity has two possibilities that guarantee his freedom. To consciously turn to Christ with the spiritual disposition he subconsciously held during the descent from the vision of supersensory spirituality up until the use of the intellect, or to complete the detachment from this spirituality and therewith become addicted to the orientation of Aramanic powers. Humanity has been in this situation since the beginning of the 15th century. This has been in preparation. With evolution everything happens gradually since the mystery of Golgotha, which as the earth's greatest event is intended to rescue man from the corruption he is necessarily exposed to because he is meant to be a free being. One can therefore say that what humanity has done in this situation was in semi-consciousness, and in this way it led to what is good in the abstract ideas about nature and to many equally good principles about life in general. But the time is over when man may still unconsciously evolve in the dangerous Aramanic sphere. The investigator of the spiritual world must draw humanity's attention to the spiritual fact that Michael has taken over the spiritual leadership of human affairs. Michael does what he must do in a way which does not influence people, but they can follow him in freedom with the Christ force. In order to find their way out of Araman's sphere in which it was necessary for them to enter, Whoever honestly feels one with anthroposophy from the bottom of his soul will rightly understand this Michael phenomenon, and anthroposophy would like to be the messenger of this Michael mission. Number 106 Michael goes again upward along the paths which humanity trod downward during the stages of spiritual evolution to the activation of intelligence. But Michaelic will, excuse me, but Michaelic will lead wills upward along the pathways which wisdom trod downward until its last stage, intelligence. Number 107 in order that humanity can develop in freedom 
From now on in world evolution, Michael merely points out the path which differentiates this Michael leadership from an earlier archangel, from all earlier archangel leaderships, even from all earlier Michael leaderships. The earlier leaderships were active in man, which meant that man's own actions could not be free. Number 108. To recognize this is man's present task, so that he can find his spiritual path with his whole soul during the Michael era. And this is the end of part 5 of Anthroposophical Guidelines. I'm on page 34. I will begin with uh, the subsection Michael's Experiences during the fulfillment of his cosmic mission on the next section.